There's a fellow by the name of George Nixon Bridge. Mr. Briggs was the former governor of Massachusetts. And on one occasion, three of his friends, they visited the Holy Land. While they were there, they climbed up Golgotha's slope, and they cut from the summit a small stick that was to be used as a walking cane. On their return, they presented this cane to the governor, and they said to him, Governor Briggs, our good friend, we want you to know that when we stood on Calvary, we remembered you. Governor Briggs accepted the gift with gratitude and courtesy, but he tenderly remarked, I appreciate your considerations of me, gentlemen, but I'm still more thankful for someone else who thought of me when I was there also. You brought me something from a tree that was on Calvary, but Christ, he died on the cross of Calvary. Last week, we looked at the greatness of the Holy Spirit. What we'd like to look at this morning is the greatness of the cross. The title of the message this morning is, Don't Cross It Out. Don't Cross It Out. There's an Anglican priest by the name of George Herbert. And George Herbert, in one of his poems called In Agony, he made the following statement. He said, love is the liquor. Of course, they would be thinking of liquor in the sense of a pure sense, not people getting drunk. But Herbert said, love is the liquor. That's why I put it in parenthesis. It's the liquid. It's sweet and most divine. The Bible says, now there abides faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, it's love. And so Herbert said, love, this, this, this thing called love, it's the liquor. But it's sweet and it's really most divine. And then he said, which my God feels as blood. But I as wine. Now the question comes up, what did Herbert mean by that when he said that God feels love as blood? I think when we think about the cross, I think we would all agree that the cross was a bloody mess, wasn't it? I mean, they put Jerusalem thorns on Jesus' head. I'm sure when they yank it on him, I'm sure there's blood that begins to, to ooze out. They slap him. They pull his beard. So not only is there blood on his head, there's blood on his face. There's blood on his hands that are pierced. There's blood on his feet that are pierced. There's a Roman spear that's thrust into the side of Jesus, and blood and water oozes out. 
And then even his own bag was whipped with a cat o' nine tails. And I think we can probably say that probably on Calvary, it was all a bloody mess. Can I have a witness in the house? And so Herbert said that love, God experiences or God feels love for him, it, it's blood. But for us, it's, oh, don't we receive the great benefits from the cross? God experiences love as blood, but we experience it as sweet, good wine that flows from the heart of his love. Let me clear just a misconception, if I may, right now, concerning the cross. Sometimes you will hear people, and they look at the Old Testament, and before the cross, they picture God as though he's mad. But as soon as the cross has transpired, or as soon as the cross has occurred, then God goes from mad to glad. Some people perceive God in the Old Testament, or God, even just generally, as though he's this stern, severe being, and we kind of almost look at him in the Old Testament as that way. But as soon as the cross has taken place, then he moves from stern and severe just to loving and being very merciful. Or maybe we could say that people, I and maybe you included, at times we might see God in the Old Testament. He's just a God of judgment. Almost like there's thunderbolts in his hand. He's ready to put a can of whooping on everybody. Put a can of, just a ghetto whooping on everybody. But as soon as Calvary has taken place, he goes from this God of, of, of judgment to all of a sudden he becomes this, this God who's just nothing but a savior and kind and tender. But I believe that's a great, great misconception because the cross, it does not, let me just use my words correctly, the cross did not change God's attitude toward man. The cross showed God's attitude toward man, that he greatly loves man, and God is the one that reaches out and doing something great to bring us back to God. Aren't you glad? Do I have a witness in the house? Two thoughts concerning the cross. The cross, it reminds us of the love of God. There's a couple of scriptures concerning the love of God. Uh, I believe they'll be right behind me. How about John 3.16? So when you look at the cross, Tina, we see the cross. I had a statement there on top of that. But the cross reminds us of the love of God. We all know the scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In fact, somebody says, when God loves, we talk about the greatness of this great God. When God loves, he will love a world. 
And when God gives, he will give a son. And so when we begin to think of the cross, at least we can begin to think that the cross reminds us that there is the love of God. And John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then in verse 17 it says, God did not send his Son into the world to what? To condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved. And so just as you look at John 3, 16, we begin to see that as we look at the love of God, there's this giving love. About 1 John 4, 10, it says, herein is love. Here's love, he says. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he gave his son... It's a real Greek fancy word, propitiation. Basically means as a covering. God sent Jesus to be a covering of all of our stuff. I don't know about you, but I had a lot of stuff to be covered. Can I have a witness in the house? And so it, it, it's a giving love. It's a covering love. But notice what it says in 1 John chapter 3. He says, behold... What manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called, and I believe the verse is right behind me, that we should be called the children of God. I mean, that God would call you and me his children? How many of you know we got the pretty good end of the deal right there? And so he says, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. He said, and we are. And he says, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. The way we look right now, humpty, bumpty, thumpty, and lumpty. Turn to your neighbor and say, he ain't talking to you right now. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. When we see him, we're going to be like him. So somehow at that resurrection day, these lowly, vile bodies are going to be transformed like under his resurrected, glorious bodies. And so we shall be forever with the Lord. And when you begin to look at the cross, we begin to recognize at the cross, we see the love of God, that it's a giving love, it's a covering of, it's a lifting love. How many times has God come to your aid and my aid and over and over and over when we have been discouraged, yet the Spirit of God comes and he lifts us up and he places on a rock to stay. Can I have a witness in the house? And so when we begin to look at the cross, we begin to recognize that therein 
is the love of God. But here's something that probably most people, including you and I, that we forget. The cross is just not about the love of God. The cross is about the justice of God. Now you say, well, why do you say that, preacher? Well, you know the story. When Adam and Eve, when we fell short of God's glory, when we transgressed, when we missed the mark, when we sinned, etc., there was a great chasm between us and God. And there's this division. But you and I, there's nothing we can do to get back into paradise. But God has been offended. His holiness, his goodness, his purity has been offended over and over and over by your neighbor's sin. And my sin. But God then begins to do something about our situation. Now we're talking about the justice of God. The cross is not only about the love of God, it's about the justice of God. Now think with me for a second. We all know 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The first part says, and we just want to focus on that, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Or it says in another version, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now stay with me just for a second. If you're with me, say, I'm with you, preacher. Now watch. So does that verse then theologically mean the following? Does it mean that God the Father made Jesus to become sin for us? Did Jesus at some point either on the cross and maybe when Jesus was drinking the cup and when he looks into the cup he sees all the dregs of humanity and he knows that he is going to have to take on the weight of the sins of the world upon himself so then does he take on Paul's injurious ways his oppressive ways. Does Jesus take on the persecuting way of evil men on the cross? Does Jesus then take on the adulterous acts of King David? Does Jesus then take on upon himself the murderous ways of King David? Because the scripture says God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Does that then mean that Jesus took on that cowardly spirit of Peter? Did Jesus take on the pride of Peter when Peter said, everybody else will deny you, but not me, Lord. And then push comes to shove, he runs. He denies the Lord. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And the rooster has to crow and it awakens his conscience. Does Jesus then 
take on the sins of these men and the sins of these men and the sins of the whole world. Now stay with me. Is that why the scripture says that he turned his back because he could not look on sin? Is that why it says in the book of Galatians, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree? Did Christ become a curse for you and me? Martin Luther, the great reformer, he thought so. He thought that Christ became the most reviled sinner of all times. But that old song says the following. Living, he loved me. And dying, he saved me. Now watch. And buried, he carried my sins far away. Now, stay with me. So if he takes on sin... And if he goes into the grave because buried, he carried my sins far away. But in the tomb, something happens to Jesus' body. What happens to Jesus' body in the tomb? He's transformed into a glorious body. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified you and me. Now stay with me. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 6. He says, if we've entered into his death, then we'll also enter into his life. So if we are in Christ, that means our sins have been carried far away. Or does it mean this? Now we're talking about the justice of God. Because God has to be satisfied because of human or mankind's constantly falling short. Oh, you and I, we may not commit outward adultery, but sometimes we can commit adultery in our minds. Sometimes we can be thieves in our mind. Sometimes we can even want to steal the glory of God. Sometimes we can even want to steal the credit that should be given to men. And we could go on and on, and we constantly fall short. And there is this fact that God's justice has to be satisfied. And we're talking about that the cross is just not only about the love of God, it's about the justice of God. Or does it mean this? Or does it mean that Christ did not literally take the sins of the world upon him, but that he became a substitute for us? Stay with me. The whole Old Testament premise, help me out, when 
Adam and Eve disobeyed in the garden? How does God clothe them? He clothes them with animal skins. The impression, even though the scripture does not clearly tell us, the impression is for God to clothe them with an animal skin that he probably had to cut the animal skin off of an animal that he had already created and maybe that in taking the skin off the animal that blood had to be shed. And so the whole Old Testament premise He starts from the very beginning, and even with the Jews, why there's lambs, and there's pigeons, and there's turtle doves, and there's oxen, and there's calves, and there's lambs, and there's goats, and constant and constant and constantly, animals had to be killed, and the blood had to be shed. Now stay with me, watch. So was these animals a substitute for what really should have occurred to each individual man because each individual man had constantly failed and fallen short of the glory of God? And God was saying, I will allow a substitute, some animal with its blood shed to be shed in your place. Now watch. Here's the reason why. Because God was always pleased with his son. At the baptism, heavens are opened. The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. And the voice from heaven says, this is my son, with whom I'm well pleased. So some theologians say, no, he did not literally take sin upon him, but he became sin's substitute, the perfect lamb of God. And he dies in your place and in my place. Now stay with me. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we hear the same words again. Climb up the Mount as they climb up the mountain, the Bible says, and as Jesus was praying, transfigured. Let me just encourage you, saints. If you're people of God, when you pray, you're transfigured. Pray. Don't talk about prayer. Don't acknowledge prayer. Don't say you believe in pray. Pray. Because the scripture says that when Jesus was praying, he was transfigured before them. And all of a sudden, when he's transfigured before them, hey, two of the dudes come along. There's Jesus. Who are the other two dudes? Moses and Elijah. And oh, Peter, bless his glorious soul, is this is incredible, Lord. He said, why don't we build three little tents here? And all of a sudden, a cloud comes. And the cloud says... No, no, no. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. During Jesus' earthly ministry in the book of Matthew, the prophecy from Isaiah, 
coming when the suffering servant will come. He'll go around doing many good works. And the scripture says, and my soul will be well pleased with him. So when you look at Jesus on the cross, some theologians say, no, 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 it's not that he actually took on the sin, but that his life was pleasing to the Father. And the Father allows Jesus to become your substitute and to be my substitute. So instead of my blood having to be shed, Jesus' blood has shed in my place and I'm free from all condemnation. Can I have a witness in the house? So it doesn't really matter which of these two theological ways you'd like to take it. The fact is, hey, listen, we're free in Christ. Let me say a few things here. Story told of a chieftain, a king in Africa. Missionary was there and missionary might have had a couple of hundred, two or three hundred copper coins, little pennies. But the missionary had one real gold sovereign. Gold, pure gold, is rare, worth hundreds of times more than all the copper pennies that were there. What Jesus is and what Jesus did on that cross is worth all of our foolishnesses together. His dying on the cross, his work on the cross has accomplished for me something that I could never do throughout all eternity. Now stay with me. We're talking about the justice of God. So, if Jesus dies a pure, perfect life on the cross, as the second Adam, or the scriptures also call him the last Adam, if Jesus dies on the cross... And he's pleased the Father, and he did no sin, but he's a substitute, and they kill him. If you're with me, say, I'm with you, preacher. Watch. And they kill him. And then they put Jesus in a grave, but God's justice must be satisfied. So God says, you can't kill a man who lived a perfect life cannot justice is this man because of what he did and the way he lived and he lived a perfect life even though mankind butchered him justice says he can't remain in the grave and i gotta raise him up so the cross is just not about the love of god it's about the mercy it's about the justice of god And so he raises Jesus up because justice says this is the right thing to do. The blessed hope that you and I have then is this. That on that great resurrection morning, because we belong to him. And he's the first fruit of many brethren. My friend, our bodies will be in the grave. It's going to come that morning. And because we've placed our faith in Jesus and we're in him and he's marked us, 
just like Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, even though we will be in the grave because our sins have been covered and he's becoming our substitute. He knows we're his and we've been forgiven. My friend, because we've been forgiven and we stand acceptable, you and I will come out of the grave to be forever with the Lord. Going to have a witness in the house. You know, sometimes we, we honor veterans that have died in the wars. And because people have died in World War II at Iwo Jima or at different places, their sacrifice brings blessings to us. His sacrifice brings a whole bunch of blessings to us. Thirdly, the cross is just not about the love of God, not only about the mercy of God, it includes and it implies there is this ransom of God. We all know that scripture verse, Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man did not come to be ministered, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The Greek word there is the word lutroo. It comes from the foundational word luo. The word luo means to loose or to loosen. And so basically what Mark is saying that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom to loosen us out of the bondage that we're in. Now the question then comes up, what did Christ come to ransom us from? How about from the law? Now watch. Christians get confused here. We're not under the law. I'm not under Old Testament law. I'm not under the law. Because the reality, I couldn't keep the law. The law slays me. And so Christ has ransomed me from the law, and I'm no longer under law. I am under grace. We're under grace. I don't have to pray to be saved. I get to pray because I am saved. I don't have to witness. I get to witness. Because what happens in a lot of believers' lives, they feel that if they do keep all these rules, whew, now God loves me. But the fact is, whew, God loves you. You can do and serve him freely. So he frees us from the law. But not only are we not under the law, we're freed from the penalty of the law. Because most people, we're not afraid of the law. It's not the law that we're afraid of. It's the penalty of the law. You're driving down the road, school zone, 15 miles an hour, you're not paying attention, you're boxing on your jukebox or, yeah, you know, I don't know what you do now. What do they call it nowadays? You're grooving? Robert, you got a good word? They're grooving? What do they do? Come on, Robert, you got to help me. People driving down, you're grooving, you're chilling, you're, you're what? You're chill. Anybody got another word? Bob. You're bobbing. You're bobbing. Vibe. You're vibing. You're vibing. Carlito. Vibing. 
but you're going 45 miles an hour. Isn't that the law that you're afraid of? But all of a sudden, you see the old smoke. And all of a sudden, your heart begins to pump Kool-Aid. I just lost $200. He's coming for me. It's not the law that you're afraid of. It's the penalty of the law. And the law says the soul that sinned, it shall die. Christ has redeemed me from the penalty of the law. He's ransomed me. There's a cross. And I like what Tozer said. Sometimes we get so bored with God. One of the best ways to stop being bored with Christianity, get out and start serving. Get out and start studying deeply the word of God and it'll move you once again to action. But not only does it ransom me from the law, from the penalty, but it ransoms me from the justice of God. And it ransoms me from the power of sin. Somebody has said it this way. They say three Ps there, Mr. B, three Ps. I've been saved from the penalty of sin. On that final, final day when I'm in heaven, I'm going to be saved from the presence of sin. But right now, I'm being saved from the power of sin. And I'm ransomed. Sin is no longer my master. Sin does not have to reign in my mortal being. Because God has sent the spirit of his son into my heart. And I've been ransomed from my flesh. Because there's somebody that lives within me. And the scripture says greater that's he that's in me than he that's in the world. Can I have a witness in the house? So I'm ransomed also from the power of sin. Fourthly, the cross, don't crucify me, stay with me. What brings the full coup d'etat upon the cross is not just Jesus dying on the cross, it's the blood that he shed on the cross. Leviticus 17 says it this way. And I have given the blood to you for an atonement upon the altar, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. So when Jesus is dying and when his blood is being spilt, there's power in that blood because really that blood is the finality or the end of what death really is. And God always said, the blood is mine. The blood is mine. But now... Blood is being spilt. He's truly dead. His blood has gone out. My friend, there's still power in the blood because God loves the blood. Ephesians says, we have redemption through the blood. Ephesians chapter 2 says, once we were far off, but we've been drawn nigh. By the blood. Revelation chapter 12, it says, and they overcame him by the blood. 
First John chapter 1, verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood cleanses us from all sin. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Now, it says, we have access into the very holy of holies by the blood of Jesus. And my friend, there's power in the blood. And we could go on talking about scriptures of the blood, the blood. But when an animal would die, it was the blood that was placed upon the atonement. And Jesus' blood is shed. And that is the finality. And it's at the cross. And because of that, there's power in the blood for us to do whatever is necessary to glorify him. Bless his name. Can I have a witness in the house? Two things in closing. The cross guarantees my acceptance before him. The funeral Thursday. And in it, I, I shared the following story. Richard, you were there. Man, wife, wagon, belongings, they're moving in a certain direction, winds behind them. But all of a sudden, the prairie fire, the prairie catches on fire. The wind is quickly l licking or lapping up. The grass, the, the brush fire behind them, and, and he tries to giddy up with his horse. And but after ten or fifteen minutes of moving his horse with his family and his wife and their belongings, he recognizes that the wind is moving too quickly. The fires is quickly just lapping up the um, just just the grass is too brittle, and he knows he can't escape, so he's in trouble. He stops, gets out. Well, still two three minutes away, he gets out. And he lights the grass on fire in front of him. So now there's grass on fire behind him. Now there's grass on fire in front of him. And he's there. When the fire comes up right up to him, all of a sudden that grass that he had lit on fire, it had moved and it had become a black spot. And he's able to move his wife, his children, his belongings into that black spot. So when the fire comes to that spot, the fire can't consume where there's nothing to consume. The fire goes all around him. You say, what are you saying? I don't know. I thought that was a good story. Here's the point. God's already judged Jesus at Calvary. If you find yourself at Calvary, maybe better said, if you find yourself in him, God's judgment has already fallen upon him, and if we're in him, we're safe. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no to them that are two things in closing, if the musicians want to come. Came across two statements. It's because of the death, death of Christ and his spilled blood on the cross that satisfied God. If that has satisfied God, then what can we fallen human beings really do? 
please him and make ourselves fully satisfactory before him. Nothing. Everything has been done by God himself. Let's throw ourselves upon the cross. Let's throw ourselves upon that great grace, that great love, that great justice. Let's throw ourselves upon God's promise that he says, I'll declare you righteous. So Richard Baker said about 400 years ago, this is a little archaic, so you have to stay with me in his speech. Baker said, God has not dealt with us after our sins. Why is it that God has now dealt with us after our sins? Isn't it because God dealt with another after our sins? Another who took our sins upon him, of whom it said, God chastened him in his fierce wrath. And why did God chasten him? But for our sins. Oh, gracious God, you who are too just to take revenge twice for the same faults. And therefore, you've turned your fierce wrath upon him. You won't turn it now upon us if we're in him. You rewarded him according to my iniquities, but now you're going to reward me according to his merits. I finish by saying this. We hear a message of the cross, but may we be faithful and loyal to the cross. Story told of a girl who was blind and a fellow who really loved her and really treated her kindly. Periodically said, would you marry me? Would you marry me? Would you marry me? And she said, if I could just see, I'd marry you. She wanted to see so she could be the best wife. She said, if I could just see, I'd marry you. Well, after his constant loving her, a couple of years down the road, somebody donated two eyes. It's more of a story. They gave her the two eyes. They did the surgery. They took the bandages off of her. And when she looked at this one who loved her, she looked all around, and she saw that he also was blind. She looked at him with his eyes, nothing there, just nothing but sockets. And she said, no, I won't marry you. And the boy said, I hope you enjoy my eyes that I just gave you. My friend, Jesus didn't give us his eyes. Jesus gave us his life and his blood. But how many turncoats do we have? Well, my friend, let's be loyal to the cross. He's a worthy king. Bless his name, world without end. Amen, 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 amen.